Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Today I'm joined by Chris Hutchinson, the lead fund manager of the small cap range at Unicorn Asset Management, a boutique small cap and aim fund management firm that boasts one of the very best long-term records in its universe. How has this fund coped with the fallout from Brexit and Trump's election? What are the prospects of future returns? And why, despite strong demand, has the firm capped new applications to its market-leading AIM Venture Capital Trust at just 10% of existing assets? These are the questions that I put to Chris Hutchinson when we met, uh, starting with asking him how he interprets what's happened to the markets uh, pre and post the Brexit vote. So I'd like to start by... um, Asking you, Chris, uh, what your take has been on the markets uh, over the last uh, six to eight months. The last time we spoke was uh, back in June, uh, which is immediately in the aftermath of the Brexit vote, as it happened by chance. Um, And you were obviously taken aback by that decision, but you felt confident that the equity market would recover from its initial shock. Um, Have things turned out as you expected? In some ways, Jonathan, absolutely, but in others, very definitely not. I I have to confess, uh, we certainly did not see that coming. Uh, We suspected uh, an exit vote would be negative in the short term for the small cap and mid cap, and so it proved to be. Um, And that was mainly based around market sentiment being negative towards the prospects for the UK consumer. Um, Ultimately, I think the thing that we hadn't factored in at all uh, was the very rapid devaluation in the value of sterling, in particular against the dollar, which meant that quite naturally the large cap very global international businesses did somewhat better than we would originally have anticipated. It's taken some time, it has to be said. Uh, Our performance went from being really quite good across the board in our funds before the Brexit vote to looking distinctly average in the immediate aftermath. Um, However, uh, there is no doubt that that um, performance, relative performance gap is closing and we are clawing it back, as people realise, in particular since the turn of the year and the reporting season that we're in currently, that these individual companies are delivering at or above market expectations and are therefore being re-rated, given that actually the sky hasn't fallen in on our heads since the Brexit vote. Um, of course, a good deal of uncertainty to come, but, but I think... It's the financial strength and and consistent earnings quality that these businesses in our portfolios that we're looking for uh, that has meant that they've been able to recover quite quickly since that uh, very sharp correction in many cases immediately after the Brexit vote. I mean, there was an element of herding, I think, in that after the uh, vote when once people have worked out it wasn't the end of the world. There was, as you say, this kind of big move towards uh, what's turned out to be quite a significant move. Um, both in style terms and in terms of size, uh, stocks have done well. Um, obviously, your your funds invest um, almost exclusively in uh, UK-listed companies, uh, but that doesn't mean they don't have some international exposure, but it's presumably lower than for many uh, for, for a mainstream uh, 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 market fund in the UK. Um, and that's been one of the factors that's made your returns look relatively 
poor I think mm. compared to the rest of the market uh, I think it's a very good point although interestingly uh, across the funds that we do manage and there are only six open-ended funds and the main VCT um, on average we would expect 50% of earnings from all the investee companies that we own to come from overseas. There's quite a considerable portion. Obviously, there are specialist businesses with 100% UK uh, consumer focus within that. However, the average is a lot higher than many people might assume. Um, I think there is one other factor, though, that has contributed to a period of relative underperformance, which, as I say, is clawing back quite nicely now. Um, and that has been um, the weight of market value in uh, certain sectors to which we typically have no exposure whatsoever. So mining, oil and gas, uh, commodities, and even the high street banks. Um, put together, those three or four sectors account for 30% of the overall value of the market. And clearly for several years, oil and gas and mining stocks in particular were having a torrid time um, and there was an inevitability about a recovery at some point. And we've seen that in the last 12 to 18 months in particular. Uh, and that uh, is another factor that has um, contributed, I suppose, in terms of the short term relative underperformance. So just to be clear, I think about this and to remind people that the reason you don't invest in those sectors, oil and gas and, and mining and the bank, the big banks, uh, is a matter of your a function of your investment approach rather than uh, a function of uh, the fact that they're not companies you might ever want to own. Well, absolutely, Jonathan. They don't meet our basic investment criteria. And, and, and the starting point for us is dead simple. Um, firstly, if we don't understand a business and don't understand how it generates consistent levels of cash flow, uh, then we won't invest in it. Uh, if we don't understand a sector uh, particularly well, we're not experts in mining or geology, uh, and they're much better, uh, the people much better placed to assess the value of the whole in the ground than, let's say, Kazakhstan than Unicorn ever will. Uh, and so we find it very difficult to identify businesses in those uh, sectors that meet our basic criteria. Uh, if, and typically, if a business isn't profitable, at the point of analysis, then we won't invest in that. And many of these junior mining oil and gas stocks clearly are in uh, their sort of exploration phase rather than their uh, profitable and cash generative phase. So it's very difficult for us to actually even seek to get sector representation. Perhaps you just remind me uh, on that point how many stocks typically you invest across your? funds and out of the size of the universe so that and, and so that people get a sense of actually what how select your fund is um well if we talk about um, the venture capital trust in particular there are 71 qualifying holdings within that portfolio today um, and that is compared with about a thousand slightly under a thousand now uh, aim quoted companies and they're predominantly for us, um, in the venture capital fund, the businesses that we're investing in, they operate across numerous sectors, but they are effectively uh, what I call proper businesses selling products or services that add a tangible benefit to their customers. Um, and 
we are incredibly selective about the types of businesses that we will invest in. Over the years that I've been managing the venture capital fund, we've on average invested in one out of 12 qualifying opportunities that we've seen. So it is quite a selective um, uh, portfolio and therefore there is an issue about what is the right sort of benchmark to measure it against in one sense. Uh, you're obviously a long-term investor. You're, the whole rationale of your fund and, and certainly of the VCT is to is to find long-term successes in the UK corporate sector. Um, so how do you actually measure and judge your performance? There, in the Venture Capital Fund, there is not an ideal benchmark against which to measure uh, performance. Clearly, the AIM index itself, uh, at one point in the heady days of the commodities boom, Mining and oil and gas stocks accounted for well in excess of 40% of the overall value of AIM as a whole. Um, and although, although that percentage has come down significantly in the aftermath, um, it's, not a, it's not a perfect benchmark to measure us against. We tend to measure ourselves against the FTSE All Share Index internally. Um, we don't have a defined benchmark on the Venture Capital Fund, but actually... I've always argued that just because a fund has some attractive tax benefits, that's not a reason to invest in it in its own right. It has to stand on its own two feet as an investment proposition first and foremost, and therefore ought to be capable of delivering performance at least as good as that delivered by the main market over three, five, ten year periods. And I'm confident that over time we can continue to outperform the FTSE at Walker. Well, let's try and drill down a bit into uh, what's actually been happening to the companies in your portfolio. Uh, two questions, really. One is, uh, how significantly have you changed the portfolio as a result of, say, Brexit and uh, Trump and the new kind of financial world order, if you like? Uh, and secondly, what's actually happening to those businesses that are in the portfolio in terms of what they say to you about what's happening to their businesses in the light of this uh, uncertain environment? Uh, in response to the first question, we have not sought to change anything. Um, it is firmly my view that if you have invested in a sensible business, uh, again, that has a product or service that, that uh, satisfies a particular need, then really there's no reason to get distracted by short-term uh, factors like a, a vote that we didn't predict. Um, so we haven't sought to change the portfolios around at all. Uh, there was a period at which, you know, there, during which there was some very irrational pricing. But in the last, um, well, since the start of the year, and companies were starting to report now on their December year financial year ends, uh, it's become very apparent to us that meeting the management teams of those businesses that they have not seen any short term impact from the Brexit vote. And I suspect in many cases they're unlikely to see any um, particular impacts going forward. I don't want to get involved in the sort of debate about how easy it will or won't be to come to, uh, to a successful conclusion to the negotiations politically, but from an operational perspective a lot of these businesses are carrying on as normal. Some of them are experiencing impacts from the devaluation of sterling, which is creating uh, inflationary cost pressures. Um, 
However, uh, in the main, uh, our experience is that they that hasn't seen that hasn't meant a significant decline in margins because they have been able to use various self-help measures, cost improvements of other areas, or passing on that cost to the consumer who has already been, uh, uh, frankly, um, well used to the idea of certain areas of um, their day-to-day expenditure going up in price, and so that it's not a surprise to anyone. Um, frankly, most of these businesses are with better operational and financial health, in my view, than they have been for at least the last 10 years. Now, that's not to say that there may not be problems if the economy as a whole struggles, but certainly from an individual perspective, the companies are in very good shape. I mean, you mentioned the uh, proportion of... Um business that lies overseas, uh, obviously part of that must be in Europe. But how, what is your experience to date of what managements are telling you about how they're going to cope with this, uh, the Brexit negotiations, which we all assume are going to last two years, so nobody knows for sure? Uh, <laughs> I guess the way to answer that is to say that um, it's business as usual. Um, there are many, many international territories where we have traded successfully without any kind of um, trade agreements, um, including, as far as my understanding goes, the US, which is a major market for us. In Europe, frankly, we're possibly marginally more competitive. Um, there may be a bit of emotional sort of backlash about buying British from the, um, the real sort of core of Europe. but. By and large, the businesses that we're talking to have not seen any uh, noticeable impact. And actually, at a, a business level, uh, it's been far more pragmatic, uh, i.e. let's carry on because we need your components and you need our finished goods. And, and so that two-way uh, trade has continued unabated. And of course, we're still in Europe technically, I guess, so, so until we know uh, the nature of those um, agreements in the in the Brexit negotiation that it would be very difficult to see any particular impact one way or the other. So just to be to finish on that point, we know we've had the, the CBI and many of the large, largest businesses in the in the economy um, or in the market anyway um, sort of complaining about the possible impact of, of, uh, of Brexit. You're not getting that picture overall from the com- the smaller companies that you tend to invest in. No, and I think uh, there is probably one other aspect of that, and that is where we do have international exposure. And as I said, across our fund range, that probably accounts for at least half of all earnings from those investee companies. Uh, most of it is in the North American, North America, in um, the Far East, and, and uh, bits and pieces in the Middle East. We don't have a huge amount of geographical exposure to Europe. Albeit that clearly, you know, Europe is um, the UK's largest sort of trading partner. Um, for us, most of those businesses have been unaffected, as I say. I, if the negotiations become very tricky, then I suspect there could be severe implications for those that do have European exposure. But as I say, it's relatively more risky than our portfolio. So I suppose then the question to ask is. Um, has the market response to Brexit and so on um, been either rational or the right answer as far as you're concerned? Or to put it another way, 
do you think that some of the valuation anomalies that have come up since then uh, will naturally disappear as, as the market comes to a more measured view of these things? Uh, they, they have been disappearing. So uh, there were many examples of really perfectly good businesses that suddenly found their share prices down by 30%, 40%, some, in some cases even more. Uh, and that was a period of irrational behaviour that lasted a few weeks uh, in the lead up to the end of 2016. Things started normalising. Uh, that valuation gap, in fact, I think, uh, just looking at, um, we do regular um, s- surveys, if you like, of the valuation gap between the small cap and the large cap, and funnily enough, uh, in the recoveries in the last few couple of months, two, three months, that uh, relative valuation gap between large caps and small caps is narrowed to a level that is um, lower than it has been for some time, put it that way. Uh, uh, in the immediate uh, uh, aftermath of Brexit, the gap in relative valuations between large caps and small caps became extreme. That changed pretty quickly afterwards as people realised that these businesses were fundamentally going to be unaffected, certainly for the foreseeable future. So, in other words, what you're saying is that small cap, for a period, became uh, particularly cheap in relative terms. Compared to large cap, in, in relative terms, absolutely, and, and we track this all the time. And, and there are various periods in time. Uh, I think prior to that, the most recent one was a uh, euro wobble in in the last quarter of 2011, and then of course there was 2008, where uh, whenever there's a risk off period in the markets, it is typically the mid to small caps that get hit most. And in this particular situation, uh, clearly with the idea of UK leaving Europe, uh, everyone became very negative on the outlook for domestically focused businesses. Uh, and certainly those where there was, um, where they were exporting to Europe, there was plenty of concern about how that would be affected as well. As I say, things seem to have settled down very considerably since and the value, uh, valuation anomaly was temporary uh, to say the least and has since um, largely recovered. But in absolute terms, you obviously have some quite strict criteria as to, as to what companies, what kind of metrics you need to see in a company mm-hmm. to invest in it, uh, return on capital, and uh, uh, you like to see um, a low um, uh, peg ratio, price to uh, P, relationship between the PE and the, uh, uh, and the growth of the earnings. Um, in absolute terms, how does the uh, valuation of your portfolio look at the moment compared to, say, um, before Brexit and, say, five years ago? Um, that's an interesting question. I think uh, it needs to be tackled on a fund-specific basis. So if we talk in particular about the Venture Capital Fund, um, I wouldn't say that the overall valuation in absolute terms today represents uh, a noticeable value. It is probably pretty fairly valued, if not at the top, if not nudging towards the top end of the valuation range. Um, And I guess for me, that's um, a consequence of a consistent delivery of results at or above expectations from a collection of businesses that have now been 
on the AIM market for a long time. Many of the constituents of the portfolio have been in there for 10 years or more, and they have established a loyal shareholder base and a loyal following of investors who have become uh, quite um, used to these types of companies delivering very consistent earnings growth uh, and that is achieved through a, a number of factors. Obviously, you need a sensible product or service that you're selling to your customers, but you also need to be able to demonstrate that you're not hobbled by high levels of debt, that you're not going out uh, on a highly acquisitive um, strategy, using, uh, which is dependent on using highly rated paper. Um, and for us, actually, the simple rule is to boil it down to basics and have a look at the cash flow statement. If, if a company is generating considerably more free cash flow than it needs to invest in its future growth plans uh, and, uh, and, and therefore uh, it has a healthy balance sheet, uh, then that cash can effectively be returned as being surplus to uh, requirements by way of dividends. And what I like to see is all those factors coming together in a business that I can understand, where I can see and have confidence in the long-term sustainable growth of that business. And so, whilst the VCT portfolio is not cheap today, I think there have been very few occasions in the last 11 years, certainly when I, since I've been managing it, that it has looked cheap. One notable exception would be December 2008, when the AIM index as a whole was down 68%. We were down on average 32% that year, and quite frankly, that was an absolute, um, it's a wonderful thing, but that was a fantastic buying, buying opportunity, a steal. In terms of a steal in value terms, uh, because from March 2009 onwards, we all saw the um, stock market recovery that kicked in and has continued ever since. Um, so... The valuations aren't extreme by any means, but I do think all investors should be wary and alert to the possibility of an asset bubble potentially developing in the future in AIM stocks in particular. And that's partly explained by an increasing weight of money coming into inheritance tax portfolios um, from people who quite rightly are looking to mitigate their inheritance tax liabilities. Um, and so that's something uh, unicorn that we're very conscious of. Other than that, I think, that, as I've said earlier, the businesses, generally speaking, are in better shape than they have been for many years. So just on the AMVCT, and that is, uh, you've got a significant amount of money in your in your AMVCT uh, from people, as you say, investors looking, among other things, apart from the growth to um, the, the growth they hope for to uh, to shield their portfolio from inheritance tax. Um, what was your experience during the, the VCT selling season this year, which was last month mainly, um, compared to previous years? Uh, and what can one read into the fact that you, you um, A, capped the amount you were taking uh, to a relatively small amount, and secondly, uh, took a lot of money in very quickly? Um, I think there's a general recognition that actually the VCT sector is credible, uh, has a real role to play in mitigating um, tax liabilities for high rate taxpayers in particular, um, but also the ones that have been through the difficult times have come 
to be successful today precisely because I imagine the managers focused on sensible businesses that are capable of generating consistent levels of growing profitability and eventually pay dividends back to investors in the VCT. That's certainly been the case with us and so we've built this steadily over many years. It wasn't that long ago, probably three or four years ago, we would have struggled to raise much money in uh, in terms of a new share offer for, for, venture, for our venture capital fund. Um, this year, uh, we launched it in January. Uh, it was closed within nine working days. We, we chose deliberately only to raise 15 million pounds because we believe there is a com- capacity constraint built in uh, by virtue of the very technical and very restrictive rules govern- governing state aid and venture capital qualifying companies. And therefore, I am not prepared to raise capital in excess of what I believe we can sensibly deploy uh, through investment in new opportunities, because um, that way um, lies severe problems and a real threat to the long-term status of the VCT. So the rule, just to interrupt, sorry, the, the rules about what, what can and what, what kind of companies uh, can qualify for VCT treatment have effectively been tightened up and you have to, yeah. look going forward, you have to invest a bigger proportion in earlier stage businesses. I think that's is that a fair way of summarizing it. Yes, absolutely. Two years ago, there were some changes to state aid qualification rules. It has made it much more restrictive. We are inevitably, therefore, looking at earlier stage, slightly more speculative businesses. They will no longer always be profitable at the point of investment, for instance, because that is simply no longer possible. However, we've got a core established, strongly performing companies across a diverse range of sectors to support long-term growth, and hence it makes a lot of sense to restrict any new uh, offer to around 10% of the capital base at the time of that offer. We had about 150 million under management when we launched um, back in January. We sought to cap that at new new money at 15 million. And I'm confident um, either that I will find really sensible homes to invest that money in, or in a 12-month period, if the deal flow has dried up in terms of qualifying companies, then I will know that it's getting trickier and we can then make a decision not to launch a new share offer in 12 months time. That's how we look at it, because it's very easy to raise an awful lot of capital at the moment because the demand is there. That's not the same as being sensible in terms of long-term investment. And what do you think, again, looking forward, you mentioned one risk, obviously, that the uh, the market may have become you know, uh, fully valued in the short term. Uh, and I guess there is always the risk of another recession coming along or something like that at some point. The business cycle hasn't been abolished. Um, but as you look out from where we are today, uh, what do you see as the, as the major risk to your uh, continued uh, performance? Uh Jonathan, it's an interesting question. I, 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 throughout my life, my, my personal bottle is almost always nearly empty. I'm quite a pessimistic sort of chap. So I'm uh, able to manage my expectations quite nicely as a consequence. Uh, but, but it's difficult to identify a single event that could derail what we built because we survived an extremely tough period, both for Unicorn as a business in 2008 and 
for the market as a whole during the financial crisis, but for our funds, you know, it was a very, very tough time. And I think when you've been through uh, really testing periods and come out the other side, um, then that puts you in very good shape to navigate through choppy waters in future. I don't see any single event that's going to uh, derail us. Uh, we're going to stick to what we've always done, which is identifying really sensible businesses and then focusing in on the fundamentals uh, of those uh, businesses so that we're confident we're investing in really good businesses that can grow in size five years, 10 years, 20 years time. Um, I guess if you kind of, if, if Brexit became a major um, issue and if that was linked to a sustained increase in inflation, which I don't see, then you could get into tricky circumstances from the sort of UK economic perspective, which might have a negative impact on markets as a whole. I think markets have had a sustained, you know, clearly had a sustained recovery over seven plus years now. Um, it's possible at some point, clearly, that there may be some correction. I don't think in many ways that would be unhealthy. I think perhaps that would be quite a good thing just to, uh, just to remind everybody that it's not a one-way investment and that markets can go down quite swiftly. Uh, we haven't seen that for some time. I think in some respects it might be healthy. What the trigger might be, I have no idea. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Chris. On, uh, on that uh, uh, reasonable note, uh, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, John. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor, Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.